Well, good morning. My name is Kyle, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you would take your Bible and turn them to Mark, Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37, we're going to continue our series in the Gospel of Mark. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles for you on the background tables. Well, we've been in this series for over a year now, and as we've been going through the book of Mark, one question has continued to press itself upon us, and that question is this, who is this man? Have you asked that question ever or lately? Because it's a question I would suggest that we all need to ask over and over again. Because in some ways, we never get to the bottom of it. And the reality is, is that people in the gospel aren't getting to the bottom of it either. It takes quite a while. No one seems to know who Jesus is as we've been reading through the gospel of Mark. The religious leaders certainly don't know. They don't understand him. The crowds don't know. They don't understand him. The disciples come close when they confess him to be the Christ. And yet, we realize that He's the Christ they want him to be, an inviolable one, and not the Christ they need him to be, a crucifiable one. And so everybody, it seems, gets it wrong, except for the demons. They get it right. But Jesus silences them. And so we've been wondering, who is this man? But Jesus has not left us in the dark. He has been, through word and deed, gesturing toward what will finally be revealed at the end of the gospel. But here he gives us a riddle because we are at the end. We're in the last week. And Jesus is teaching in the temple. And here in the gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 35 through 37, he gives us a riddle concerning his own identity. Listen to God's word. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I put all your enemies under your feet. And David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning, I want to start by seeing how awake you are. Do you like riddles? What can travel around the world while staying in a corner? A stamp. Well, some of you took a little while. There was some lag time there. Maybe, maybe it's my hearing. Alexa, turn down the lag time. What is white and black and red all over? Oh, we got that one. There we go. What has hands but cannot clap? A clock. What gets wetter and wetter the more it dries? A towel. There you go. Which word in the dictionary is spelled incorrectly? Incorrectly. There we go. Well, I guess some of you got some of those riddles. Well, how about this one? David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Mark 12, 37. 
Jesus poses us to, uh, to us this riddle. The riddle is concerning this person he calls the Christ. Verse 35, how can the scribe say that the Christ is the son of David? And then verse 37, David himself calls him, that is the Christ, Lord. So how is he his son? And to answer this riddle, we, to even begin to answer it, we need to actually understand something about this figure Jesus calls the Christ. Now, contrary to popular opinion, Christ was not Jesus' last name, okay? Jesus' last name was Bar-Joseph, son of Joseph, because they didn't have last names back in that day. It's a very modern thing, last name. Now, Christ was a title or an honorific, like well, your favorite wrestler, you know, Jerry Lawler, the king. The King Lawler, king, is an honorific. The Christ was an honorific. So you have to understand that in this day, the Jews were not in the best circumstances. They had problems, problems that abounded. They had political problems. They were ruled by the Romans, and they didn't have a king in the line of David seated on the throne. They had social problems with poor everywhere and hatred and strife amongst groups. They had religious problems. Uh, the priests in the temple were not actually Aaron's sons, and that was a problem. And they had spiritual problems because God himself had not returned to the temple and filled it with his glory. They had problems that abounded. And yet they were not without hope. You see, they believed that God was going to rescue them. And the way that God was going to rescue them is that he was going to send a rescuer who they called the Christ or the Messiah in Hebrew. This figure was, they believed, a son of David, a descendant of great King David. And like great King David, he would expand the borders of Israel so that they ruled the nations around them. And like great King David, he would establish the law in Israel so that the people followed it. And like great King David, he would establish a situation in which there was a true temple and a true priesthood that worshipped God rightly. And everyone was looking for this figure called the Christ, the Messiah, because like great King David, he would also be anointed, which is what the word Christ or Messiah means the anointed one. Well, throughout this gospel, we have started to see toward the end that a couple people start to suspect that Jesus is this Christ, that he is the Messiah. Back in chapter 8, Peter declares, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, in the middle of chapter 8. And then as Jesus kind of teaches on that for two chapters, we get to the end of chapter 10, and this blind guy named Bartimaeus cries out to Jesus and says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, Jesus, Christ, Messiah. And yet, while everyone was looking for the Christ, and while some people thought that Jesus might be the Christ, there was a lot of confusion about who this Christ was and what it would mean that they would come and how God, through this Christ, would restore Israel. Would it be through military might? Would it be through the law? How would he do it? 
And Jesus begins to teach on this identity. And what we find in this passage is that to have Jesus as the Christ means that in Jesus you have a prophet to teach you. In Jesus you have a king to rule you. And in Jesus you have a priest to serve you. And that he does all this as God to save you. So first, a prophet to teach you. Note verse 35 that says that Jesus taught in the temple. Jesus is there in the temple and he is teaching the people who are around him. Now it's really important to understand that at this time there were lots of different groups of Jews. And while they had lots of similarities, they also had quite a few differences. Those differences mainly stemmed over how do you interpret the law? How do you live the law? And how was God going to rescue his people? And they actually all bickered and disagreed about this. Sound familiar? Look at the church today. And so they're bickering and they're disagreeing about how God is going to do all this stuff. But they, they thought that, you know, when God does rescue us, he's going to send a teacher, a prophet. Maybe this prophet will be the Christ. Maybe it will be another figure. But he will show us how to read the scriptures rightly and how to follow them. And it's in this context, this Jewish context, that Jesus taught in the temple and he turns to Psalm 110. Now, if I were to take a poll today and ask what are some of your favorite verses in the Bible, what's your favorite passage of scripture, what's your favorite text, those of you who are familiar with Christianity, maybe you might say, John 3.16, or some of you might say Romans 8, or some of you might say, well, it's, it's, it's John 4, or it's Luke 15. How many of you would say Psalm 110? Probably not very many. It's a seemingly obscure text that was read earlier, and, and it was obscure in Jesus' day. Well, from all the evidence that we can tell, people were not thinking about or reflecting on Psalm 110. But I have a little factoid for you. This is why you come to church. Do you know what the most quoted or referred to passage in the uh, New Testament is? What Old Testament passage is most referred to in the New Testament? Any guess? Any educated guesses? Psalm 110. How does Psalm 110 go from being this obscure, not looked at, not noticed verse, or passage, psalm, to the most often quoted, often referenced, most reflected on verse in the early church? Verse 35 Jesus taught in the temple. That's how. See, Jesus is the true prophet who brings God's truth to his people. The truth about the world, the truth about ourselves, the truth about God, and the truth about his scriptures. And Jesus not only brings the truth to his people, he brings the truth to life. And as he teaches in, uh, on Psalm 110, the early church, they reflected on it, they remembered, and it became everything to them. And what did he teach about? What did he say Psalm 110 was about? Him. He said, it's about me. 
You see, Jesus, when he opens up scripture, he doesn't see Esau's fables. He doesn't see a list of rules that get you through life, though it does have rules. He doesn't see a moral code, though there is morality there. No, what he sees is a story that's all pointing to him. Some of you don't know how to make heads or tails out of this book. You've tried, you've started reading, you're not sure. Can I give you a clue? This book is not seven steps to get you through a mucky Monday. And if you're looking for that, you will misunderstand it. This book is not a list of heroes for you to emulate on Tuesday morning. This book is about God and how God entered a sinful, broken, fallen world to rescue it in the person of Jesus Christ. And as the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, every story whispers his name. Every law is there to point you to Jesus. Every story is meant to point you to Jesus. Every poem is meant to point you to Jesus. He's the beauty of the poetry. He is the, he is the better king. He is the better sacrifice. And he is God's wisdom. And he is there in Scripture for you. So take and read. And ask the question, how does this show me Jesus? Jesus is a prophet to teach you. Secondly, though, we see, what does he teach that Psalm 110 is about? Well, how does Jesus think Psalm 110 points to his identity? Well, that brings us to our next points. Second, Jesus is a king to rule you. That's one of the things that it means that Jesus is the Christ. In verse 36, he quotes Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put all your enemies under your feet. Here we have this God, the Lord, Yahweh, saying to my Lord, the Messiah, the Christ, come sit at my right hand. The right hand is the place of rule and power and authority. What the text is saying is that the Messiah will rule. And notice whose right hand he goes to. What position of sovereignty? It is not the President of the United States of America. Nor is it the British monarchy. Nor is it the Emperor of Rome. But it's the right hand of God on high. See, his authority crosses and transcends all national, socioeconomic, and political bounds. Every human boundary is transcended by his authority. And that means he is everyone's Lord. He's not just Western people's Lord. He's not just middle class people's Lord. He's not just upper class people's Lord. He's not just white people's Lord. He's not just black people's Lord. He is everyone's Lord. And everyone is called to recognize that. That he is the king. Verse 2 goes on in Psalm 110 to say, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The scepter was the symbol of sovereignty and power. And how does he use this sovereignty? He exercises the sovereignty over his enemies. Verse 36 of our text, Until I put all your enemies under your feet. 
And again, the text goes on, rule in the midst of your enemies in Psalm 110. And who are his enemies? Well, just think back on the Gospel of Mark and what we've seen. The first enemy, the first conflict that happens in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is baptized in the wilderness, and then he he goes out into the wilderness, and what happens? He does battle with Satan. Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God are Jesus' enemies. Now, this might sound crazy. It might sound hokey to you, but I want you to know this. Hear me say this. There are spiritual forces of evil out there. And they don't come across in kind of like red capes and red skin with horns. They actually take tangible forms like Southern religiosity, read Flannery O'Connor. They take tangible forms like political oppression. They take tangible forms like the Nazi party. They take tangible forms all around us, and they can even take tangible forms like church leaders. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus has to say to Peter. See, there are spiritual forces of evil out there and in here. And the line, the battle lines, they they run through us all. And in and through every human institution. And in and through every nation. And Jesus has come to do battle against those enemies. But not just those enemies, all the evil powers of this world, which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God, Jesus has come to do battle with. And we see those... We see those religious leaders in the gospel who corrupt and destroy the creatures of God by putting onerous burdens on the people so that they confuse God's heart for a set of rules. But it's not just the religious leaders, it's not just Satan and all the spiritual forces of evil. In Mark, in the gospel of Mark, another thing that we see is that one of the biggest enemies in the gospel of Mark against Jesus is this thing that Mark calls the hardness of heart. In other words, it's our sinfulness. And Jesus has come to do battle against that as well. All the sinful desires that draw us from the love of God. And this is good news. You know why? It's good news because it means that Jesus is for your flourishing. And while his enemies might not be your enemies, the enemies at least you think you have, they are your true enemies, the things that actually prevent you from living the full and free life before God that you were always intended to live. And Jesus comes to fight He comes to defeat all those forces, the spiritual and satanic forces, the socio-political and religious forces and institutional forces and societal forces. Uh, He also comes to defeat the self-sabotage, the addiction, the self-destructive habits and tendencies that continue to undermine our relationships and our relational flourishing that we just can't get over. Jesus comes to defeat all those things for you and for me. 
But here's the question. Will you accept his rule? Because in order for Jesus to rule for you, he has to rule over you. That's why Psalm 110 goes on to say in verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. It's, um, it's, it's like, it's like, uh, it's like taking a, I don't know, I was looking for an illustration all week and I haven't gotten one up to this point, but I'm going to try it. <laughs> Lord, in your mercy. It's like, a, it's like if, if I had a company that I was going to do an adventure trip with, and I was going to go canyoning with them through Utah and the national parks there. That sounds amazing. Uh, and what if I were to ask, is this safe? And they say, look, it's safe if you stay with us, you follow our rules, and you stay on the line. But you start wandering off, we can't protect you. We can't cover you. We can't cover you or protect you from all the wild beasts out there. Shows you, I don't know if there are wild beasts in Utah, but pretend with me. I can't cover you or protect you. If you don't hook up your harness right and gravity overtakes you, I can't protect you from these. You have to stick with me, and you have to follow our rules. Otherwise, I can't protect you. Jesus, in order to actually have him rule for you, he has to rule over you, and you have to come under his sovereignty. So are you willing to do that? Listen to him. Jesus is the prophet to teach you. Jesus is the king to rule you. But Jesus is also the priest to serve you. One of the big gains, I think, in biblical scholarship, a community that I'm a part of, um, is that over the last 50 or so years, people have started to see that when the New Testament refers to an Old Testament passage or words or verse, it usually has the whole context in mind, actually. Because when Jews, when they thought of the Old Testament, they were an auditory or verbal culture. And so if you said one thing or half a line, it actually would conjure up a whole passage. So it would be like me saying, um, it would be like me saying, um, let me think of a good illusion. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, and you would think, lend me your ear. How many people thought, lend me your ear after I said that? Maybe some, maybe none. That was a bad one. So another one would be four score and seven years ago. So you say these things and a couple words, a line, will conjure up a whole context, a whole speech. And that's what we find is happening in the New Testament. Well, if we take the entire context in mind, it's no coincidence, I think, that right after the passage that Jesus quotes about the Lord said to my Lord, come sit at my right hand, Psalm 110 goes on to call this Christ a priest. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, when we hear that, we all are like, absolutely, because we all know Melchizedek, right? Now, Melchizedek is this very obscure figure. He shows up, and then he goes away, and then he shows up again in the New Testament. 
He shows up in Genesis 14 when Abraham invites some priests or some kings from the surrounding region to have a treaty with him. And one of the kings is the king of Salam or the king of Salome or the king of peace. And this king of peace, this mysterious figure, he, he appears before Abraham and he offers him bread and wine. Hmm. And then in Genesis 14, 18, it says that Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek, a priest of the Most High God who serves Abraham bread and wine. A king priest who serves Abraham bread and wine. And he's there and then he goes away. And it's really curious because this is before Israel's established. This is before the Aaronic priesthood. This is before all the priests of God. And so you're asking the question, where did this priest come from? And where did he go? And what it suggests is that his priesthood is directly from God and it is absolutely unique, Melchizedek. That his priesthood is eternal. That he is a priest forever. And that he lasts forever. And maybe the Melchizedek is another name for Jesus. Every story whispers his name. In Jesus, he's saying, I am that kind of priest. My priesthood lasts forever. And notice where he says this, verse 35, in the temple. In the temple, the temple which only a chapter earlier he has cursed. A temple which he will say a chapter later in verse and chapter 13 is going to be come to an end. And yet he says, I am a priest forever. You see what Jesus is doing is he's saying that my priesthood replaces and transcends and outlasts this temple. And here's what that means. It transcends and outlasts and replaces this temple because Jesus' priesthood, it gives you eternal access to God. You know, priests, they died. And that was one of the problems. You would unload on them, you'd get to know them, you'd tell them everything. They'd bring your stuff before God. They'd bring your concerns. They'd bring your sins. And you had a great relationship with them. And then the priest would die. And you'd have to, like, find another priest and start all over. And some of you know this with, like, counselors. You know, you go to see one counselor. And you go through your story and your history. And then it's like, you've got to go see another one because they moved out of town. And you have to go through it again. Or maybe you... Uh, uh, are working with a caseworker. Maybe you go into a hospital and you tell one medical professional everything and then they're like, oh, I can't help you, but I know someone who can. And then they send you over and you're like, could I not just have recorded that? Because now you've got to do it again with another person. I mean, you know what this is like. And it's just, ah. Well, that happened with the priest. But, but Jesus... Hebrews 7.23 says that the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through himself. He always lives to make intercession for them. Here's what that means. It means that, that Jesus, is priest, Jesus as priest stands before the throne of God, and he never takes a, a break. Not a bathroom break, not a vacation, not a day off. 
And here's what that also means. It means that you have someone representing you before God permanently, all the time. It means that Jesus' own person is there to say, you have access to God, permanent access. And you don't have to wonder if you're going to show up and he's not there and wait in the waiting room until he gets there. He is always there. And therefore, you can go to God to bring your cares and your concern and your sin and your joy and your obedience and your worship. And you can know that you always have access and you always have a right to access. And Jesus is there as priests, had the names of Israel on their garments. Jesus is there and your names are written on his hands, his five wounds They are there pleading for you as a continual reminder to God. Do you think God forgets you? Yeah, we think God forgets us because we forget God. He's there not to remind God. He's there to remind you and me that we always have a right to go to the throne of God. So go. Go boldly. He is a priest that serves you and gives you eternal access to God, and he will never forget you. But the reason why you have eternal access to God is because Jesus' priesthood gives you an eternal sacrifice. You know, if there's a thing that I hate in life, uh, it is laundry. Now, it's not actually going through the putting, sorting the laundry and putting it in the, in the uh, washing machine and taking it out and putting it in the dryer and then sorting it and putting it away. I don't mind all that at all. In fact, sometimes I, I quite enjoy it. The thing that I don't like, though, is that when I get done with that whole routine, you know, it's been a couple hours and I go back to my laundry basket to throw the dirty clothes from the, uh, from the day away and somehow it's already full. Has anybody n- noticed that? Like, it just perpetually continues to fill up. There's no way to like, get down to the bottom of laundry. It, it is unceasing. It always goes after, uh, on and on and on and on. It's perpetually there. And because of that, the work of laundry is never done. And that's what I don't like about laundry. That you never have a moment where you're like, Done with the laundry. I mean, because you're probably wearing clothes at that point, right? So you're not done with the laundry, okay? In the same way, the exact same way, a priest work was never done. The priest would go in. They would have to actually take a bath. They would have to bathe their clothes. Then they would go in and they would make a sacrifice. Then they would come out. Then they would have to take another bath and change their clothes. That first sacrifice was for them. Then they'd have to go in and make another sacrifice for the people. Then they would come out, and then they would wash and change, and then they would go again to make intercession for the people. And then they'd have to do it all over again and do it all over again and do it all over again. And the priest work was never done. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, day in and day out. And because of that, the priest could never sit down. Ever. It was like laundry. It was never done. You know, I met this guy one time. He's an engineer. He's doing a startup co- company. It reminds me of this. And uh, he decided, because of this whole phenomenon, he said, what is the easiest way to have laundry done? What would make my life simple? 
And so he said, well, the easiest thing would be to have a machine that goes around, picks up your clothes off the floor right when uh, it senses your clothes on the floor, right when you throw them. It grabs the laundry, it sorts it, takes it to the washing machine and all that, right? And so he's like, yeah, I didn't, I can't do that. So what he's done is he's creating this closet where you hang your dirty clothes in the closet and it washes them and dries them for you, right? I really hope that he finishes this invention, and I hope that it's affordable or he gives me something, uh, a discount for it, like a, some kind of model. I mean, that would be amazing. You would have perpetually clean clothes, right? But you know what would be better than that? If the clothes were unable to be dirtied. If the clothes had some kind of soil protector that they are perpetually clean and dirt could not touch them. Christian, do you realize that that's what Jesus provides you with his sacrifice? Because when the Son of God gave up his life and poured out his blood, he cried out, it is finished. And the work was done. And the work was so done that he sat down the Bible tells us, because the work was finished. Jesus not, he doesn't just offer you perpetually clean clothes, he offers you a perpetually clean life with his sacrifice. Because he offers not bulls and goats, but he offers his own precious blood. Now I know what some of you are thinking, you're thinking this whole idea of cleansing, sacrifice, it's so outdated it's so irrelevant. Irre- it's so, it's such an old model. Can't we moderns just get over this talk? Well, I wish we could. But before you dis- dismiss this, consider this with me for a second. I think if you walked around town today, you could go to, for instance, a yoga class where people are talking about ridding themselves of negative thoughts. I think that you could go sit in a coffee shop where you might overhear someone talking about leave the pa- leaving the past behind. Or you might uh, go to a workout center like um, one of the owners of one who I talked to lately who said, well, you know, as, as people, we are people of extremes, and so we're constantly binging and purging. And so we're just going to binge, and then we have to clean, cleanse ourselves. And so we offer these cleanses, workout cleanses, and food cleanses because to counteract, to counterbalance the kind of bad things we do in life, the unhealthy things. Hmm. You know, the analogies have changed, but I think the reality remains. I think we know what it's like to feel guilt and shame, dirty, like we're not enough. And I think that we know what it's like to have strategies and rituals that try to clean ourselves up, that try to remove it, that try to make up for it. But here's the thing. All the healthy living rituals that we do, all the volunteering rituals that we do, even those self-loathing rituals that we do, incessantly, don't you know that they're never going to make up for all the wrong we've done? 
don't you have this sneaking suspicion that it's never enough and that the work is never done? That's why you have to keep on and on and on at them. And, and aren't you tired? Some of you, you've realized this. And you've just come to the place where you think, I'm always going to be dirty and guilty, and I'm never going to be enough. And I'm not sure why I go on living, but I'm not sure I have a reason or energy to die. Wherever you are this morning, listen to me. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how many times. There is a fountain that flows from Calvary that can cleanse you from even the guilt of a guilty conscience. And it is real, and it is present, and it is eternally efficacious. Because the Son of God's blood, it is sufficient for you and for me. I once heard the story of this, this young college student who was so addicted to pornography that, um, that he had a hard time making it to class and making it to social events and getting on with life. And he met with a minister, and the minister asked him about it, and he also found out what else he was doing with his time, and that was that he was taking showers, incessantly taking showers, three, four, five showers a day. And he would stay in the shower for 15, 20, 30 minutes. And he said he could just never feel clean. Maybe you're not taking showers, but you're doing something. If you're doing something to try to cleanse yourself, you can stop and rest in Jesus. You can stop and rejoice and sing and dance and get out of the shower because your Lord and God and the creator of the universe has spilled his precious blood for you. Which brings us to the last point. Jesus is not only the prophet to teach you. He's not only the king to rule you. He's not only the priest to serve you. But he does all this as God to save you. And that's why he can do it. See, the, the curious question that Jesus asked revolves around this verse 37. How come the Messiah, who is David's son, calls him Lord? Especially when in an ancient culture, you always, if you were the son or the grandson, or you always were under the authority of your elder. It, it, even if your elder died, you were under the authority of their memory and their rule. You always submitted to them. 
So how is it that the Messiah, uh, that David calls the Messiah Lord? And here's the answer. Verse 37, come sit at my right hand. That, that this Messiah shares the identity of the one true God. He shares the throne of the one true God. He tells, shares the authority of the one true God because he is the one true God. That's what Christians believe. And that's why the early church was so excited about Psalm 110. Because what Psalm 110 teaches and what Jesus reveals about himself is this. That Jesus is the man that God became when God decided to become a man for us and for our salvation. I had a friend who, he, uh, he, won the, he was awarded the Peyton Manning Scholarship. Which means Peyton Manning, this great football player, uh, went to the University of Tennessee and then played uh, for Indianapolis Colts and the Denver Broncos. Um, so obviously he uh, has some extra expendable cash. He started this scholarship fund at the University of Tennessee, and my friend was awarded it. Now it's one thing if somebody tells you you have the Peyton Manning scholarship and he's going to pay for your scholarship. But it's another thing when he received the phone call from Peyton Manning that says, hey, it's Peyton here. Just want to meet you. I'm going to fly in to meet you on this date. I'm going to write you a check. I'm going to hand it to you. Right? That's a totally different story. Because then you've got assurance that actually, it's not just up and, you know, that through some intermediary this is going to happen, and maybe it'll happen, but maybe it won't. But it's like, no, the guy actually in flesh and blood took out the pen and the paper, he wrote the check, and he handed it to me, and I shook his hand. When God comes to save us, he doesn't do it through a middleman. He comes in flesh and blood. He does it himself because it's the only way it could be done. 20th century theologian Karl Barth puts it this way, it was the Son of God that is God himself who took our place and thereby freed us from divine anger and judgment. Only God, our Lord and Creator, could stand as surety for us, could take our place, could suffer eternal death in our stead as the consequence of our sin in such a way that it was finally suffered and overcome. Only God could take the punishment for our sin in such a way that it was finally suffered and overcome. And that's the good news of the gospel. God for us. God for you. God for me. As our prophet, our priest, and our king. And God, we do ask that we would submit to your saving work. That we would rest in it, rejoice in it, rely upon it. Sing and dance, love and pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen.